We're back! We're back! It's a distraction! I'm Drew! That's Rob! Hi, Rob! How you doing? Hey, hey man. How's it going? How was yeah. your uh, vacation? Good. How was your vacation? It was pretty good. Good talk. It was... Uh, mine wasn't fully a vacation. We had to... I went to Maine, but it was mainly to, like, do tasks in a son-in-law style So I carried some stuff around for a while, which was good, I think. I needed to do that. Oh, uh, all right. But at least Maine was involved, so we can have a brief Maine discourse, and we can say, oh, Maine, that's a state. And then Terrific. we can move on. Yeah, rocky coasts, uh, older men in overalls, everything that you look for in a vacation destination, they've got it. Just an absolutely deathly time on the sports calendar. Maybe my, fa- my least favorite time on the sports calendar. Uh, so it's a perfect time to talk about carrying heavy shit from one place to another in <laughs> yes. Maine, because that is about as sporty as it gets. But thankfully, Roth... Yep. We have a guest this week, and our guest... Oh, good. Thank goodness, because that's all I had. It's Slate senior writer Ben Mathisley. Hi, Ben. How are you? I'm good. Hey, guys. I'm out here in Colorado, which is kind of the main of the Central Rockies, I think, maybe. I don't know. No, I I think that's generally understood to be... Most people call it that. It's on the license plate. You're not wrong. I I don't agree, because Colorado's too cool. Like, it needs to be more... Shouldn't it be a more remote uh, part of the Rockies that gets... uh, that gets the main credit. Like, do the Rockies stretch into like Alberta? Shouldn't like sh- the shitty part of Alberta be the main? It's of the disrespectful Rockies? to Maine, and it's inaccurate. I, d- I don't mind being disrespectful. I think Colorado is like part of Maine has a Colorado vibe, and then a lot of Maine has like an Idaho vibe. And you never know when you're going to cross from one into the other. But like, that's you know, there's nothing wrong with it. Uh, there's plenty of, of nice things to recommend about both. You just got to be careful when you're in Idaho because everybody's armed. Anyway, Ben, we're actually somehow, against all odds, going to talk about sports uh, this week because this was the week. Um, <laughs> I can't believe that it's such a good time to talk about college football, but it is, Ben, because UCLA and USC are joining the announced they are joining the Big Ten this week. Now, Ben, you're a very public Michigan fan, so I want to ask you right off the bat: Are you happy that the Big Ten is set to expand into the Pacific, or as a tr- are you a a traditionalist? Are you concerned? Are you mostly concerned that that's two more losses on Michigan's schedule for you? Uh, I think we can. Ha- I think we can handle UCLA. Um, USC might be a different story. I think I'm. I'm. I'm pretty. I'm happy to neutral on this one. Um, the last big move the Big Ten made was adding Maryland and Rutgers. Um, I'm a New Jersey resident, so no particular offense is meant to New Jersey about this. Uh, but, uh, Please by this. offend New Jersey. <laughs> but that was, that was not a great addition to the schedule. I don't think that, no. that added much to the rivalry. So what they have here, they've, they've kind of like, I think they've kind of uh, preemptively neutered the fan backlash a little bit because USC and UCLA have a history with the Big Ten, that being the, the Rose Bowl, uh, the traditional Pac-12 Big Ten matchup. So it, it's not like it, it's not going to be jarring to see those colors on the field together. So as a fan, I don't mind it much. But but I think that if I were someone else in one of the other positions involved in this, like an athlete at UCLA in one of the other sports, for example, and I was now looking at a travel schedule that was heavy on Lincoln, Nebraska, uh, Piscataway, uh, places like that, I might be a little more upset. They've never even seen the type of sandwiches that you can get in Piscataway. They wouldn't, like, a West Coast brain would be incapable of understanding it. They'd be like, the mozzarella sticks don't go in it. You have them next to it. They would need somebody to explain to them that cultures are different across these United States. Yeah, and we all know that only the tri-state areas will serve breakfast sandwiches on rolls. I mean, that's established. It's totally foreign (laughs) to the rest of the country, anyone tri-state area. I do feel like the the point that Ben makes in there, uh, you know, sort of, 
facetiously and not facetiously, the idea that like how much this is going to suck for a student athlete that abruptly has to fly across the country to play a basketball game on a Tuesday night and then fly back. Uh, one of the many things that seems not to have been considered at all in putting this shit together. But otherwise, it's like the sort of thing where it's like a perfectly reasonable seeming business move that has no other justification that you could even reach for. Yeah, I just I, that I can see. I think oh, one ahead, of the ben. things that uh, uh, one of the commissioners said is that they had plans to address the travel issue, which would have to involve like some sort of un- unforeseen, un- here for- heretofore un- unforeseen uh, style of nuclear fusion or something. I mean, there's just <laughs> yeah, yeah. Gonna say, we're gonna invent so, teleportation. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Like we, because you know, a lot of these are uh, you know tier one research universities, <laughs> so they're they're working on the portal issue and that's going to really make it a lot easier for the kids to do their homework uh when they're yeah flying for six hours on a weeknight there are a couple things ben one is you made a good point where this is much better this is obviously when the big 10 added maryland and Rutgers, it was because they wanted to expand their television presence on the east coast because as we all know Rutgers football is so so popular in the northeast <laughs> corridor all anyone in new york city talks about they're like <laughs> right so this we have is, a whole greg shiano handshake that we do with each other so this is the same uh this is the same kind of maneuver except this time they're adding like they're adding one uh powerhouse school that really is about to become a powerhouse because they bought they uh, they got Lincoln Riley away from Oklahoma and Caleb Williams too. So USC is going to become USC again very very quickly. And then they got UCLA which is not a very good football school, but it's not like uh, an embarrassing football school. It's also an incredibly good basketball program. Yeah, I know that the Big also, 10 doesn't yeah. care about that that much right. or as much as they do about football, but that's they just added a team that's in the Final Four every other year to so, the uh, schedule as well. So that is actually, like, as a fan, that's actually a, quite uh, quite appealing to me. Even if even if I can't believe the Rose Bowl didn't stop in at the last second and be like, oh, this is a violation of Rose Bowl tradition. We can't have it. Ah, the way that like, they always do. The other thing I wanted to ask you, Ben, was that it seems to me like Pac-10 athletes continually are getting punished for being the people who actually stood up during the pandemic and during the George Floyd po- protests and said, like, we don't want to be part of this shit anymore. And we're not going to play. We're not going to play football for you and, and get infected with COVID. And it seems like ever since then, the Pac-10, along with the rest of college football, has done everything they can to make these athletes lives worse. I think that's right. I think <clears throat> I think the Pac-12 was at the, uh, the, the athletes in particular, the football players and, and the athletes from some other sports, but a lot of football players uh, were the first people to say, like, this sucks. Uh, I don't want to play practice in like, or like, you know, hang out in a locker room during a pandemic uh, of a virus that spread through the air. Um, That was a reasonable thing to say. And I think so the kind of direct connection between then and now is that the PAC 12, the ACC and and the big 10 formed the, the, the alliance, the quote unquote alliance of inform, like kind of an informal alleged uh, <clears throat> you know, group of uh, alleged uh, alliance of schools who had an interest in things besides re- revenue, basically things besides TV revenue. Sure. Uh, they were supposed to be upholding yeah. academics and, and sportsmanship and, and all that stuff. Um, <laughs> and as you can see, that, of course, went, went right out the window when the Big Ten realized uh, what they had to do here to get a better TV deal from everyone is presuming, I, th- I guess, Fox. Um, I would add, though, that there is still a little bit uh, the, in, the sense in which those kind of values that the alliance talked about, the sense in which they actually persist and they matter 
in college football and in college sports is that they matter to those schools' brands. <laughs> so not yeah. right. Not yeah. in a, it's not in a, like a really principled, meaningful way necessarily. But like there is a there is a way that like the audiences for these schools like Michigan or Notre Dame or whatever like to think of themselves as having as being participants in something that that has like a you know some academic component to it. Uh, you know, players who care about who care about the school and actually show up on campus and that sort of thing. So if you look at the schools they're poaching, it's USC, UCLA, um, Washington and Oregon and Stanford are getting thrown around. So schools with a, you know, a little better, maybe a better academic reputation, some kind of history to them. So I, I wouldn't say that those things are, are totally subservient to TV revenue, uh, but they matter insofar as they also help generate TV revenue, if that makes sense. Right. I think that's a really good point to make that like the idea of like the TV revenue, some of it comes because, you know, these are like, you know, monster fights like Ohio State, USC, like people want to watch that or whatever. But it is like the that's the part of it that's kind of been interesting for me. I've been like meaning to write about it and I haven't really been able to come up with anything but like just sort of some exasperated sounding size, uh, which when I'm when I'm writing like that, it usually is expressed through M dash abuse. But like I've got nothing really to add beyond the fact that it seems like it's sort of splitting into the two the sort of the the bifurcating of college football brands. That there's the ones that have this sort of like idea of tradition and service and you know legends and leaders like Big Ten grandiosity. Yeah. And then the other one is the sort of like metastatic SEC where they're just kind of like a pickup truck driving over you forever. <laughs> like that's the other approach to it. And it makes sense in some ways that that would be because I think those are the two main lanes at the highest level in, in college football and I think in college sports to a certain extent overall. The challenge with that, though, is that like a lot of what I like about it, as someone who likes college basketball more than college football, is that there is still some like weird regional, like you know, all those small conferences that you know send one bid to the NCAA tournament and stuff every year. Like to me, that is, you know, even acknowledging all the exploitation and stuff that's baked into that process, that's cool. Like that is a distinctive thing that has like a real regional. American flavor to it. Yeah. It's got the, and the it's idea got the of replacing flavor. that with like two conferences with 50 teams in them is like grim to me. Like that's just not, it doesn't feel the same. If I may interrupt here, I, I'm not sure I agree with you, Roth, about, well, you know what, you know what it is? And I'm going to, I'm going to pose this question to you, Ben, is I don't think, like, I, I think that um, the bifurcation you're talking about is strictly splitting along television lines. So it's the SEC. Uh, which is going to ESPN uh, forever in 2024, and then Fox with the Big Ten, and I think those are essentially those are essentially the the two buckets that we're going to get. I think that the the sort of academic branding part of it that Michigan and Notre Dame and other schools uh, you know like to indulge in, I think that that's kind of beside the point because I don't think Ben that I don't think that a football team standing has any influence whatsoever on a college's academic standing. Like, I don't think anybody who wants to go to Northwestern as a student gives half a fuck whether or not the football team gets good grades or not at Northwestern. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think I, I would say that I, I, so plug for my book, out August 30th, Ooh! anywhere books are sold, The wow. Hot Seat. Definitely done. Um, and uh, so I, this is largely about Michigan uh, with some uh, some journeys to Louisiana State and in the state of Florida. But I, so I talked to some Michigan players for this, uh, and and a lot of administrators and people around programs like that. 
I would say it ma- that it matters to those people, and that's something that I feel like I learned while, while talking to all these people. I, I think you're right that maybe the average fan or student even is not necessarily thinking football good equals school good. Um, but like particularly for the people who are joining these programs, like if you talk to the kind of person who decides to play football at Michigan, they will always bring up the academics. Um, you know, or say like my mom wanted me to go there because like she wanted me to get a good education. And the coaches and the administrators all think of themselves as being part of this molding of men thing, you know, that that a lot of people are, are very rightly cynical about, like especially right. journalists are very cynical. But But that doesn't, we're cynical about it. And they might not be always living up to the ideals that they espouse, but it still matters to them. If that makes sense. And so the decisions that get made by these athletic directors and the college presidents still um, are still related to that ideal, even if maybe like it's not, you know, being at somewhere like Florida State University, uh, for example, being carried out in practice very well, um, that that they're, they're still thinking about that stuff when they're making these decisions. For the book, what convinced you that particularly among the coaches and the administrators, that it did matter to them and that they weren't just paying you lip service to it? That's a good question. I think that they they definitely know that that's the first thing they have to mention. Um, right. but, it, but it was, I, I mean, this is like, a, to some extent, maybe I'm just a soft target, but an, an interview that didn't even go get really go into the book, uh, I did with uh, Mark Ritt, who was the coach at Georgia for a long time and then coached at University of Miami. Turnover it, chain. Yeah. 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 Uh, and, and he's like... You know, I didn't come into it thinking of the, him as like a especially like a true believer, especially in any of this stuff. And no. He's retired, and he he's an he's an analyst, and he has an incentive now to like kind of be more frank or whatever. And but it was all he talked about. You know, for like a solid hour, he just talked about like getting making sure practice ended on time so that his assisted coaches could see their kids and stuff. And and so like it was conversations like that when like. I would try to bait them into being like, yeah, but you would also bend the rules a little bit if you had to. And just no one would take that bait. And then <laughs> behind the scenes, when I would talk to players and they would, I would say, how does Michigan sell itself to you? They would be like, oh, they never stop talking about like the architecture program or whatever, you know? <laughs> so like, My yes. grandma studied architecture in Michigan. Oh, there that. you go. That's part of the legacy that is uh, attracting, I guess, the occasional four-star recruit. So you should feel right. <laughs> good about that. Yeah. So, you know, I, I get, yeah, like, I think that I, I don't want to sound like I, I've been completely suckered by this, uh, but I think, like, they have certainly convinced, a lot of people have certainly convinced themselves of this, uh, whether or not, again, it's like it's being... Um, you know, enacted in all their in all their behavior. Although I will say that, like, if you look at schools like Michigan or Northwestern or Stanford, when they who talk about this stuff all the time and are very pr- proud of of their academics, like, if you look at whether their players graduate, they they do they do they graduate a lot more than players at Louisiana State or Florida State. So, like, you, there's a ways that you can kind of tell that they're that they're following through on this. Granted, that's you know, I'm sure they have extensive tutoring resources for the players there. You know, the professors are aware of who the who the players are. So it's not to say that they, they're really getting treated like any other student necessarily, but there is a real distinction bes- between some of these schools that I think sometimes gets lost in the kind of appropriately directed cynicism that we have about, you know, because of Yeah, things. I think but. I think you can hold the two thoughts in, in your head at the same time, even 
with the cynicism being like sort of fully inhabited there too, that there is like this sense of like, yeah, like whatever, if it's a delusion, if it's branding, if it's whatever, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's completely fake. Right. Like it's not the way that like Baylor talks about piety and then yeah. just like runs itself <laughs> yeah. the way that it does. You know, there are like, levels. Many yeah, subtle. like our dedication to Baptist values, and then like just every day the football team is fighting with samurai swords. Like that's you know that's their issue. I will say though, I, I feel like that's part of like the the broader like college sports thing, and that's again in terms of like reading about this, like reading like the athletic like blow by blow of how this decision got made. What's striking about it is how absent all of that stuff is because like even to the extent to which it's window dressing it's been window dressing that like it it sells the house you know like in a way that nothing else really has like it's been the stuff that i've been told my entire life and so to see these executives having these conversations and the only thing that they're talking about is like are you going to be the guy that signs the billion dollar tv deal or are you going to puss out (laughs) like it's just pure like bullshit executive swinging dick behavior like all the other considerations which you know like i guess now you know who they're fake to right you know that like if what if if it's real to mark richt you know like if it's real to jim harbaugh somehow then like obviously if you go far enough up the chain there's somebody who doesn't give a shit i do want to push back though um on you and ben and say that i think at a school like northwestern or stanford that maybe has a higher graduation rate than like auburn that is sort of baked into the model because if i'm on the stanford football team I'm probably not going to the NFL, right? But I know how much more valuable a Stanford degree is than a Mississippi State degree is. So I'm going to already be incentivized to just get my degree, even if I get C's across the board. And the school, which has an academic reputation to uphold already and has plenty of resources and billions in endowment, they're going to give me what I need to get that degree. And so I think that there is... I think that those... Those higher graduation rates, I don't think that they're necessarily fake, but I think that they are more... That they're overdetermined or whatever? Yeah, I think that they're more predetermined given what is already happening at the school. Um, And that's that's my take. I was going to say, does that make sense? But I've already asked, does that make sense (laughs) once? And it's, it's like... It's sort of leading the witness. Like, I'm trying to get you to say yes to that. Question. No, I think you're right. I think it's self-selected. Uh, but I think that's, like, so Michigan fans, like, will get really frustrated about, like, the school not pursuing a certain kind of recruit, right? Like, like that's, uh, you know, like, the book, the idea for my book was, like, why, what, look how mad these people are on message boards all the time, including myself, and, like, trying to figure out, like, why that is. Like, you know, the history, why, how... How history of America and like human psychology, like it's all like swirled into a t- vortex of like m- me being on a message board at one in the morning and and cursing at people, you know, like I'm trying to figure out myself with it. But like, and so I will get mad. Like, wh- why don't we, why don't we just try to sign the best players instead of worrying about this like dumb academic stuff? And the answer is like the players decide to some extent, like a player who wants to like go pro and doesn't care as much about school is not going to like write, you know, answer the phone call from Michigan. And so, like, they can't... Right, why, why would it yeah. bother with that shit? Right. Like, it's also funny, because Michigan, they didn't they kind of... Exp- I mean, I don't want to cast too many aspersions, but, like, wasn't please, Rich Rodriguez please, yeah. generally an attempt to, like, basically become that type of school, and then everybody agreed it wasn't fun and they didn't like it? Yeah, I, I mean, well, like, he, and there, there were, he brought in a lot of... You know, if you look at, like, the players he recruited, like, an unusually high percentage of them didn't finish at Michigan, because, like... You know, he brought in guys from Florida, and and there have been many successful players from Florida academically at the University of Michigan. So this is not 
but uh, an insult to Florida specifically, but like he got again. Know, this is a podcast. This is for insults. You can <laughs> right, insult right, Florida I know, and I, Michigan. I just want that noted before you go. <laughs> um, but yeah, he would. You know, he brought in kind of a player who 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 had had you know guys who had been arrested in high school, for example, and like that really upset like a certain percentage of the Michigan you know donor and professor community. And then the players, those players were not really like happy there either. So like they did try it and it, and it didn't work. And like, at the time I was like, this is so stupid. Like, can everyone just get over themselves? Uh, and just like agree that we need to work together to win this fucking game, you know? Um, and, and I've kind of learned more like the, the, the it's just, it, yeah, it's not necessarily going to work in some places. Yeah. I, I wonder to what extent it, like how things might've been different if it had worked. I mean, I think that some of it in the fullness of time, the issue is, I, it seems more that Rich Rodriguez is just not a, an especially good football coach. Totally. Like if I, yes. like not a, but it's the same sort of deal where, you know, if you look at to, I keep bringing this back to basketball because that's what I know more about. But if you look at Kentucky hiring Billy Gillespie, like that didn't go well. Right. And it didn't go well because he's Billy Gillespie was out of control and was like, he was the wrong type of scuzzy. He's it's a difference of degree and also of polish between him and John Calipari though. It's the, the question there was not that they brought in a guy and they were like, we don't like this like sort of bootlegger goofball bribe guy like it wasn't that he it was that he did it wrong right it wasn't that they didn't like what he was doing and i feel like that's the sort of thing where you know if rich rodriguez had like even uh like a mike leach brain or whatever then like who's to say you know that the culture of michigan wouldn't have adapted to that because like the team was winning 10 games every absolutely year, like right? a great i mean denard robinson is from one of these smaller towns in florida um and was that was an extraordinarily successful decision by Rodriguez to bring Denard Robinson to Michigan. Yeah. And and if he had gotten a defensive end version of Denard Robinson, which, which he didn't, like yes, it it could have totally changed the, the path there, and people would have dealt with the fact that he had kind of like a you know West Virginia accent or whatever. And that's kind of like to me like part of the fun of college sports and bas you know college basketball football, as you say, is like th these things are not fixed. Like they they can change and they, and they can change not just because of these big cultural trends or whatever the kind of crap that i like to talk about just but just because one guy is really good yeah it is difficult though because i'm thinking back to when bill snyder built kansas state into a powerhouse and he did so largely on the back of juco transfers and like you can do that at k-state because it's k-state but i think doing it in michigan is difficult not only because of sort of like alumni hand wringing and oh it's not who we are and all that stuff but like you said um because of because of whether or not that appeals to a JUCO transfer to go to a place that is, you know, supposedly more academically serious, and whether or not it appeals to uh, the other players on the team and things like that. So that's yeah. that's interesting to me whether or not whether or not these things are somewhat entrenched and much harder to change when I've seen people like Bill Snyder do it in an instant, but it needs to be perhaps the perfect ground for yeah. an interesting one like that is ohio state like ohio state kind of I, you know when when i was growing when when people our age were growing up like was still had like somewhat of a michigan not a lot not like michigan in every way but like you know like we're gonna put up 10 guys on the line and run the football 400 times thing like that was an ohio that was ohio state mm -hmm. in michigan um, trestle ball yeah sure. yeah and like right like the, you know that woody hayes and trestle ball were like pretty stylistically similar that's not how they play anymore Ryan Day is not like a Midwest. Their coach is not like a Midwestern hard ass kind of guy. He kind of comes off more as like a management consultant type dude, like one of these like 
you know, like this kind of contemporary kind of football coach. They throw the shit out of the ball. They recruit guys from Texas and California. Uh, and that, they, so they kind of like have reformulated their identity on the fly. And they're like, oh, well, we're just the team that like beats the shit out of you. And we don't really care how it gets done. Yeah. That said, that's, uh, yeah. that's strategic, though. That's not like nobody. Ohio State was never anyone's idea of like the Harvard of the Midwest. <laughs> you know what I mean? No. Well, I mean, that's Ohio State all over. I think the, I've been thinking the Denard Robinson example is really interesting in this because it's like, I guess, yes, it's the signal accomplishment of the Rich Rod era. But it's also, you know, so much of like what you were saying in terms of like being willing to part ways with a style that is outdated because you want to. Comp- you know, you want to play in the championship series every year. Like, that makes a lot of sense. And I feel like Michigan, in a way that, like, very few other programs would have done, has really kind of, like, resisted that. Like, they've modernized. But Denard Robinson's the only type of quarterback that they've had. Like, a guy that was allowed to, like, make plays with his feet, that didn't have to... When I think of a Michigan quarterback, it's like, for my whole life, it's been, like, Drew Henson or John Navarre. Like, just some big, tall, white standing back there throwing the ball eight yards. There, there was a good big, tall white. There uh, was. I mean, was. they've had some really One of them good was ones. Good. I, was, I know you're talking about Brian Greasy. Uh, but, the, <laughs> <laughs> but there's, like, that unwillingness to sort of, or at least, like, sort of the resistance to it, that they're, like, they're modernizing but only a little bit, is really, like, it's, again, like, more sort of proof that, like, however much this might be branding, like, somebody there believes it, clearly. Like, they believe it's important. Let's take a quick commercial break. We'll come right back with Ben Mathisley of Slate to talk college football. Armageddon. All right, we'll be right back. We're back with Ben Mathisley of Slate, and we're talking college football. Uh, ben, uh, the Pac-10... Uh, I'm sorry, Ben. The Pac-12 isn't done being looted because... Uh, a very dire Big 12 is now allegedly trying to add six Pac-12 teams, potentially including Oregon, into its deal. Because And the Pac-12's deal is expiring in 2024. And it was reported today, and this is Wednesday, that the Pac-12 is already trying to land a new TV deal before all this shit goes down. But will that happen, or is the Pac-12 essentially dead now? The Pac-12 seems dead to me. As a, I, just as if you look at what their their brand is now. Like, it does seem natural for the, the northern schools, like, uh, you know, Cal and Stanford, like, they, they're kind of Big Tenny, uh, and it seems natural for them to break off the one way, and then for, like, the Arizonas, you know, the Arizonas to go with the Big 12, uh, which is, which is, this is a very lucky turn of events for the Big 12, uh, which was right. uh, <laughs> trying to get people excited about Cincinnati and, and UCF, which I'm excited about as kind of a college football weirdo, but I don't think is like really exciting to television executives. Yeah. And now they're looking at like maybe, you know, kind of being like a semi <laughs> We finally got into the Cincinnati market. This is huge. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so now, yeah, I think I, I, I kind of think that the Pac-12 is, is done. Uh, Can I ask a question about this is not on the <laughs> rundown. I'm just something I've been curious about because I don't understand the way because I don't follow soccer very closely. The thing that I've seen mentioned most often in terms of how a conference with 20 teams in it would run is that people have talked about the idea of there being relegation in the mega conference era that like once the dust settles and it's three conferences with like a solid plurality of high end, you know, D1 teams in it, like how would relegation be applied to this scenario? Like I don't, I don't think I get enough about how relegation works. Or it definitely it? seems could to me like you need a way to organize this so that it's not 
all weeknight flights to Penn State to play basketball games. Uh, I I think a relegation is something people are excited about in theory because it's such a good idea. I don't mm-hmm. think that like even the weird thing about talking about this stuff is that you have, especially with people who don't fully like follow the business of it, is you have to say things like Purdue's interests are really important here. Uh, which, <laughs> which I'm about to say, which is weird because as a football powerhouse, it's not, you know, people don't think of Purdue as a football powerhouse relative to somewhere like, you know, Cincinnati even, which is like actually good. But like Purdue has so many alumni, like so many people went to Purdue that they do have like an interest here and they do have more leverage than than some of these other schools. And I, my, I kind of think like Purdue is never going to let itself be relegated. And so they're never going to sign up for that. I think. I think what people are envisioning is kind of like there's an A division and a B division within these mega conferences. And so like, it's not like you're going down to the mid-American conference or whatever, but that you just go Mm -hmm. down to the crummier division and then you don't have, I don't know, like you're not, you don't have an an automatic entry into the playoff or whatever from there, something like that. I think, I think people are talking about that because it'd be neat. Uh, I don't, I don't see it actually happening. Yeah, that's a good point in terms of who the actual stakeholders are here, that it is like the most unreasonable and coddled local grandees in every state and their like metropolitan area. Like the idea, like I hadn't let myself consider like what a Purdue football booster <laughs> might be like until now, but like, my God, what a thought. Like, yeah, yeah. Talk about <laughs> talk about an exercise in futility, man. That is yeah. a rough, rough way to... That's a rough calling in life. And something I, I kind of was, I mean, it's like I learned a lot of things through this book that I kind of already knew, but I never really fully thought about. And one of them was like going to Florida and talking about some Florida schools. Like these colleges didn't exist in like 1966. Like I, I, the University of Central Florida and like Florida Atlantic University, like Michigan or Ohio State or whatever had like several billionaire alumni before these schools had any alumni. And so, yeah. like, even if it's a school like Florida State, which, like, we think of because Florida State was awesome in the late 80s and 90s, like, we think of that as a blue bud, like, they don't have, like, rich guys who are 91 years old. Uh, or if they do, they only have one of them, you know, whereas, like, some of these other places like Purdue probably have, like, 15 guys who were, are big in the mechanical engineering space and, and, and have that kind of sway. So uh, that, that's, like, something I was reminded of constantly going down to Florida and seeing these places. Always cool when uh, the same forces that make, you know, broader life in the United States untenable and shitty, when you're reminded that they actually bring themselves to bear on everything that you enjoy. Like, it's not just, it's one thing where, like, your vote doesn't matter. It's another thing where, like, also the guy, like, whatever, some rich octogenarian from Purdue is also capable of, like, just fucking with your Saturdays. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and the funny th- funny thing is is that even the Florida schools, like the one I wrote about was Florida Atlantic because that's where Florida State's coach, uh, Willie Taggart, went after he got fired in a kind of like total fiasco situation. He went to Florida Atlantic, which is in Coral Gables. And the reason Florida Atlantic has nice building on its campus, or one of them, is that the guy who founded the tractor supply company uh, moved to Coral Gables like and liked Florida. So like even these schools that are not part of that like are also enveloped in it. Yeah. I, I think... Uh- one thing is, I, I don't, like like Ben, I think it's uh, unrealistic to assume that there will be relegation or even sort of, um, you know, you know tiers within conferences. Like, those are sort of just naturally self-selecting anyway. Like, we all know that, like, Illinois football is not going to be in the top tier of the Big Ten, no matter what division you put it in, right? But I do think, and this is like, 
I can put on like half a tinfoil hat here. It seems to me like what we're going to end up with is not a power five, but like a power three, probably even a power two. And you get some colleges, some schools are going to be left out on the dance floor. And what it's going to be is consolidation of halves within the sport. And that is going to be a way for coaches and administrators at those schools to retain both their status and their massive, massive salaries in an age when NIL reform threatens both of those things. Is that realistic to say, Ben, or have I gone like one degree too far? No, I mean, of course. I, I mean, the, 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 you know, the way it all trickles down is like they need the TV revenue and they need the TV, TV revenue, I think, for two reasons. One of them is selfish because like they are just used to this used to this lifestyle as administrators yeah. that like it's natural for an athletic director to make $950,000 or whatever, as opposed to what you would make at, I don't know, Bennington College or something like right. that. Right. Yeah, you know? right. Um, but so I think that's definitely a part of it. Like no one wants to cut their own pay or, like just because it's fair. Like as, as another um another way that sports is is like our larger society like you know voting to give yourself less money is not something that we see right. being really yeah. popular but i think no. there's also and this is kind of like i this will be the last tedious time i mention this but like i think there's also a way in which it's it's legitimate for these athletic directors and administrators and presidents to pursue this interest in in the sense that like usc alums like they don't want to be bad at football and like whether that's <laughs> Whether that's like uh, an a impulse of, of human nature that that is uh, one that we should be trying to eradicate, like is is that like it's just one that we're not going to eradicate. Like so, it might be like the morally correct choice in a lot of ways to not participate in this and to like de-escalate your program into a more Division One AA or Division Two kind of model where these like athletes are really part of campus culture and so forth. But that's not what that's not what the people at the school want. Uh, yeah, they right. want to feel like because they are connected to USC that they are like they are part of something that's powerful and important and relevant to the larger society. Like that's why they went to USC in the first place. So I think get... that like a lot of the shit that the presidents and the administrators take for this is justified because like especially in individual cases, like the classic one is like the guys who are chairman of like the Sugar Bowl or whatever, and they make seven hundred fifty thousand dollars for four days of work a year. Like that is deserved, but also like they're doing on some level what their constituents want. And those are people that want to like have a big time football team to root for. Yeah. There's one little bit that I want to ask on top of that, because I, I feel like we probably need to move on to the dumb stuff soon. But the so your colleague Joel Anderson posted the other day about the idea of like how in terms of that constituent service, which I think we can understand is like. You know, there's tiers of it, you know, like these guys are working for themselves, they're working for the boosters and the alumni and, you know, whatever, and then all this and whatever their TV overlords want for them. The bigger question that Joel sort of raised is like, is it actually better to be the 22nd best team in the Big 12 than it is to be good in the fall? Like if you have all the stuff that comes with, you know, being part of a billion dollar TV deal conference. So you've got the fucking marble you know, fixtures in your locker room and there's like a, you know, a Dr. Pepper fountain that everybody can like splash around in and drink from whenever. Like, is that what you want if your team is winning three games a year and you get your ass kicked like twice a month by somebody? Like, where, like, whose interests are being served, not just in terms of like by grabbing the money, but then like, how do you actually deliver something that people 
like that the, that the stakeholders would want. Yeah, I think that's. I think to, I would totally agree with Joel about that. Like he's a TCU fan and and former player, and I think that he's de- yep. <laughs> definitely excited. He backed up Ladanian Tomlinson. It's a really good story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, oh, yeah. I was I was actually about to ask if you guys knew that that whole thing. Um, and Gary Patterson once insulted his foot speed. Uh, the uh, yeah, I think that's actually so. That's I I don't I might be misreading it. Um, especially for I, I'm definitely misreading it as as far as like for fans of like Cal or Stanford, right? Ever right now, like are not probably happy or like Washington State or whatever. But I think that this like recent move has like not triggered a ton of backlash because it actually puts things back into that natural order a little more. Like like the big these Big Twelve schools like like TCU and 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 SNU, like, uh, I, I agree with Joel. Like, they're not really meant to be, like, three and nine teams. Like, that's not what their fans want. And I think on a, this is the most uh, potentially disagreeable thing I might be saying. I think schools like you, Illinois, like, we all know Will Leach. Like, I think to some extent Will Leach likes getting beaten badly. Yes. Uh, <laughs> like, <laughs> that's, like, it reminds yeah, not him to of his kink shame or anything, but, yes, <laughs> there is an element of that. Yeah. No, like, you know like, what? It's important that your football team not be that good. Like, it's fun when they're good, but, like, if suddenly they were, like, in the fucking Rose Bowl every year, you wouldn't know what to do with yourself if you'd only watched them ever be one yeah. way. Well, the other thing, Roth, is that you have seen this play out at the professional level. You have seen this happen, particularly yeah. in baseball. You've seen it in pro football where there are teams that get a steady TV revenue supply, and then they don't give a fuck. And they can not give a fuck because usually their fans, like, their fans will stay loyal anyway, either as civic pride or have habit or because they enjoy, like, being, like, downtrodden and, you know, being sort of, you know, Pity addicts and all that shit. And because the fact that, like, if you get the money up front, it kind of doesn't matter what the fans do. Yeah! yeah. At least in, in Major League Baseball, that's the case. I don't know that that's necessarily... Like, if you have a 100,000-seat football stadium and it's half empty, like, that's not... Something's not cooking right at that point. Like, it, it's, it feels like you're right in terms of the calculation of it. I also just can't imagine the idea of, like, really what that would look like in a college football scenario. Yeah, ben, I do you... Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Ben. I think I no. I think that's right, and I think that's like having kind of like semi defended like this round of realignment. I think that's the that actually gets at the one way it's going to be long term destructive, is that like reorienting all this stuff around TV eventually means, and it already means like the stadiums aren't full. Alabama's stadium isn't full. Like that's a this is a story we do every year. Is Nick Saban being mad that the 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 students are leaving in the third quarter or whatever, and like. Ultimately, all this like TV money is like coming is deriving from like an actual fun experience people have at college football stadiums or at games or whatever. And if you're and if you're kind of like shooting the legs out from that by making the games, this is my like particular wine that I do like a hundred times a year on Twitter, like making the games four hours and two minutes long because there are commercial breaks. Like, yeah, event or because like the fans aren't traveling to games because they're in these weird conferences where they're across the country from all the people they play. If you're doing that, like, yeah, I do think that's what ultimately destroys this, like, you know, it's not going to destroy the sport, uh, but but makes it, like, less commercially viable as if, like, you're only getting 30,000 fans at a stadium for these games. It's not as fun of a TV product, as people say, you know? Like, so, yeah, I think that's yeah. the way that, like, this could this could backfire eventually. If it does end, though, without any non-conference games, so I don't have to watch Alabama, like, beat Sanford by, like, 72. Yeah. Like, like in September... <laughs> I, I think that there is a, a potentially a better TV product on the horizon if essentially these conferences become so big 
that conference play is all they do until the playoff comes uh, in January. Yeah, that's what's, think, so, you know, a big Michigan fan on Twitter, uh, uh, that Braves and Birds guy, uh, I retweeted. It's like, he's like, I, I don't like TV executives making money. It's I'm not rooting for that. But like the fact that we just replaced Middle, T- Middle Tennessee State with UCLA on our schedule, like, I do like that. So it's like that. Yeah, you know, it's cooler. Yeah, it's better. Yeah. And even if both fan bases are kind of meh on like that particular matchup, for sure, like, again, this is why they get paid the money. Like, I'm more likely to watch that on television than I am, you know, to watch them play MTSU. That's a fair point. Uh, We have to do guy of the week and we have to get to the fun bag. But I want a one word answer from both of you uh, because I have to stay topical for a moment or at least a week removed from being topical. Ben, Kevin Durant just requested a trade from the Nets and the Nets seemed inclined to give him one. Who is he going to? One word answer only, please. Miami. All right, Roth. <laughs> this feels like the McLaughlin group. I love it. Uh, Suns. That's your show. All right. Okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think they fuck him and they keep him anyway. All right. Uh, your guy of the week every week, Ben. We remember a guy, an athlete from your who was not great, but was someone you remember because you go, oh, I remember that guy. And your guy of the week, in honor of you, Ben, the Michigan fan, our guy of the week, it's Todd Collins. Remember that guy? I do, and I, I do, and I don't. And I actually saw this on the uh, on the notes for the show, and I thought that to make it more authentic, I would not look up anything about Todd Collins before trying to answer this, because I think as, as um, it relates to that conversation we had earlier about Michigan's like really impressive run of like equally generic kind of good guys, yeah. just galoot mode yeah. for a generation, which is. Yeah, I don't actually, I remember Todd Collins. I don't think I could name any, say any identifying detail about him that make that, that distinguishes him from John Navarre and Elvis Gerback. So I remember Todd Collins because I was at the Cordell Stewart game uh, right. when Cordell hit Michael Westbrook in the end zone. And Todd Collins was the quarterback of that Michigan team. And he was at the press conference after the, after the Hail Mary happened. And he said, that's just a crappy way to lose. And it was so, <laughs> it was so refreshingly honest and so correct <laughs> that I haven't forgotten it. And of course he went on to become a pro quarterback and he won a playoff game for the Washington commanders. So I not, would never have known that. I knew not, he was, yeah, on he the was bears, a, right? Like, he was yeah, on the, he was bills. mostly a backup. Yeah. But I, he was mostly on the bills and the, and the commanders. I think, I think he played for a fucking lot of teams. I'm not going to do yeah. the thing where I, you know, I interrupt the podcast to go Googling around, but he was on more than the a game. He teams. won for the Durs was definitely like, he was a like either the backup or the backups backup. It was he was not the starter for the team. I either, believe it was right? in Tampa, and it was during Joe Gibbs' phase two. Did they have or, a really know? good running back? Was that Portis? Uh, oh, uh, do they have Clinton Portis? I think yeah, I think it was. Or it was Stephen Davis probably? But it was yeah. one of those guys that was like they were. That team wasn't very good, but it was like they were spunky. Like I think I remember being like pleased that Todd Collins was playing in a playoff game at all. Right. They what I not... remember about Collins as an NFL quarterback and as a college quarterback was that he wore like fullback style shoulder pads. Yeah. Now, I don't actually know if that's true, <laughs> but that is what I remember about him was pads that came up to his ear hole a... and somehow he was able to pass. He sounds like a that. guy with a square head, I think is what you're like. A, yes. Like a... No. And you know what? You're right. <laughs> Drew. Uh, I believe it was either also the season or before the, the season before Sean Taylor died. So right. I, I think that that there was some like emotional heft there uh but let's open up the fun bag and uh this is from ben not you ben method but a different ben different ben writes in you lose a bet and you have to go to a furry convention dressed as a furry what would your furry costume be ben 
Uh, so I wanted to ask some questions about this before I give my answer. It sounds to me, based on the familiarity with which this uh, listener wrote that question, that this is a topic that you guys generally cover. No, not the least. <laughs> no, surprisingly, no. I mean, I did write a blog about the furry convention in Pittsburgh on Sunday. Oh, but yeah. this question surely came in before that. Okay. Yes, I, I think it did. Okay, so, I mean, and maybe, maybe you don't know the answer to this either, but is it supposed to... So it, the question is, I guess, I know what the this thing is. You dress up like an animal. Is it supposed to reflect who you are in your, like, civilian life? Or is it supposed to be, like, totally different? Or can you do that to decide that? Is there, like, so, a... As, uh, that's a good question. While I'm enjoying the back end of the... You know the expertise that you get when you read, like, three articles and write a post? Yes. And then for, like, 24 hours, you're having a Flowers for Algernon type thing where you <laughs> like you actually know something... And then it, you know, it has not completely been flushed from my brain yet. The answer to your question, Ben, is yes. It can be either, okay. it seems like. And uh, yeah, I don't know about like losing a bet. I don't want to wear a 50-pound furry costume around, but it does like seem it, like, uh, like a bit at warm. the very least, the one in Pittsburgh seems like extremely good vibes. Like people in Pittsburgh love it. The conventioneers love it. Like it seems like a fun time. Uh, I just don't know about wearing like, a whimsical fox costume around when it's 91 degrees. How, uh, how is it any different, Roth, really, from, like, SantaCon? Like, what's the uh, difference? I think that the difference there... Well, SantaCon is tough because that is basically gang-style binge drinking. I think... But the, you're in a costume and you're binge drinking, and, and you're, you're a furry. You just put on a unicorn outfit, and then you drop acid. What's really... Yeah, but, I mean, but you, the difference is that, like... When you're binge drinking, you're getting worse uh, over the course of a day, and you're Speak doing it in yourself. public. Whereas I think the the furry thing, I think it's like sort of localized to the convention center or to. I mean, I guess there's like restaurants around the area, but apparently mm. the restaurants are very accommodating. There's one place that apparently will just like, if upon request, will serve you your meal in a dog bowl during the anthrocon. Like to me, that shit rules. Like <laughs> I can't be mad at it. Uh, comparing anything to SantaCon is. I know. I'm going to say that Santa Con is worse. It's it's a bit rude. Uh, but and basically, like if you were like, how is the Hindenburg different than the Santa Con <laughs> experience? I'd be like, well, this, Hindenburg was over in like an hour. <laughs> but hey, listen, none of you motherfuckers answered the question. So pick an animal. I'm ready. All I'm right. ready. I, 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 um, I think that I'll, I'll do the earnest answer. Um, my like upbringing was in like semi-rural Michigan. So I will go with like a like smallish wood. And I'm like, that's not a big, big dude. So I think it would be like most authentic for me to be like a squirrel or a woodchuck or something. I think that or a like, wolverine, I, perhaps. Well, they, they're not mm -hmm. they, as you probably were indoctrinated with in your first semester. There, uh, they are not nat not native to uh, the the Great Lakes area, but they are sure furry rodent like creatures. It's true. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not like a tough tough person either. I, <laughs> this answer is just really <laughs> you. Uh, yeah. A, or Slate Rider? Not tough? <laughs> um, My Slate pitch is actually that Slate Riders are the toughest people in the world. And, yeah, uh, I mean, Joel actually, is a, they're great. Joel is a pretty tough dude. Joel is a football player. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't fuck with Joel. Yeah. You I could fuck with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Roth, what, we're not going to do Josh Levine chat. <laughs> so I will, to steer it back to Maine, POW second encore. We're getting there. More Maine chat. Yes. When I was up there, we had an extremely good run of seeing weird animals that I had never seen alive in Maine before. Uh, I saw a fox in the wild, which was cool. Foxes are awesome. 
totally extremely cool. dope. Like it just looked like a, a very confident dog. Yep. Uh, but it was not a coyote either. I've seen those and those kind of freak you out a little bit. Like a fox, you're like nature's majesty. Yeah, yeah. Coyote, Coyotes are mangy just, freaks. And yeah, you're like that thing wants to like eat all the garbage that we have near our home. Yeah. But the animal that I did finally see alive that I think I would like to, if I had to, to fursona myself, I saw a porcupine uh, moving around. Didn't get to see it climbing a tree, uh, but I've seen plenty of porcupines dead. I had never seen one alive, and they are, in the same way that beavers are, just endearingly hideous to me. Like, they always look wet and, like, fucked up. They don't, <laughs> they don't like, run very well. And there's something very, uh, I don't know, like... It does what it says on the box. You see a porcupine moving around, and you know exactly why it evolved the way that it did, and you know what it's about, and uh, I appreciate the um, earnestness of it. Uh, my answer, of course, is a gorilla, because I, <laughs> yes. like, I have a daydream like where I'm like uh, I'm the lead singer of a band, and I get to play the, the MTV Video Music Awards back when those are, were relevant, and I do the entire thing in a gorilla costume. And not only that, I have a whole... I have a whole dance troupe behind me, and we do a choreographed dance in sync, all in gorilla outfits. And I'm playing the guitar, and the whole like the whole crowd's going like, "Holy fuck, it's he's a fucking gorilla!" And then we all dogpile at the end, uh, like at the end of the song, because we all just well, that, all that is out. very furry convention. So yeah. At the so, end so my answer good. is a, is a gorilla. Anonymous writes in: I became a vegetarian while dating my wife 15 years ago. When we fight, I cheat by getting illicit meat products and shoveling them in my face. Does this make me a bad husband? And what other <laughs> forms of non-sexual cheating are acceptable in a relationship? Ben, have you ever gotten back at your wife by fisting a bag of ham? <laughs> this is a true story. My actually, my our first date was at a Fetisau in in Brooklyn, which is a, a local like one of these yeah, like, barbecue Brooklyn place. barbecue places that are like Texas style. So no, we actually that was like my my segue during the on the the. Um, the uh, the night we met was like she said she had eaten like the the local you know the local thing that every restaurant has where like if you eat a, enough like a disgusting amount of food at this place like you get your picture on the wall yeah, yeah. I mean that's a like the like the thirty six ounce steak yeah the old ninety sixer yes. right <laughs> so she she was like this is like one of her like canned anecdotes at the time was that she was like the first woman to get on the wall at this one at this place in Ohio because she went to Kenyon College so there's like this, hey yeah. congratulations um and so that she did that and so I was like this was like in my head I was like well there here we go like I was like segue like I I work at New York Magazine like I do like you know restaurant listings so I like no, I we could, I know a place we could go eat a lot of meat together and it worked and that was like that line worked uh and so that, so which is to say no that wouldn't in our relationship that wouldn't be what you do i think mine would just be like leaving crap out you know like not cleaning a thing like looking at a thing get not clean and then just walking away and not cleaning it not cleaning it up yeah that is ringing a lot of bells <laughs> for me uh but so i am in this sort of relationship because my wife eats fish and vegetables, but not meat. And I eat everything, but mostly eat fish and vegetables because we, you know, eat most of our meals together. The, uh, I do periodically have, I mean, this has happened less and less because she's not traveling for work and we spent two years, you know, like everybody else, not traveling for any reason. It used to be that when she would travel for work, I would have like the meat boy diet that I would do during the days that she was away. Hell like, yeah. Have, Go all I used Kang. to use the phrase... Yeah, like uh, Drew, I mean, lives the meat boy diet every single day. But the, I used to 
I used the phrase personal meat parties for a while. People don't like that phrase, and I understand why they don't like it, but I, yeah, that, that was a big part of the appeal for me. That, uh, there's definitely, like, an, an element of revulsion on her part to it, just because she was, like, raised vegetarian. Like, she's tried stuff, like, once, but, like, her parents were vegetarian, and, like, so she's not got any of that sort of latent... The way that everybody I know that's a vegetarian had some sort of, like, fond childhood remembrance of a hot dog or whatever, she never had that. Like, she never, like, ate a hot dog at a time when that was something you wanted. And so the smell of it now is just repellent to her. For me, like, that's the... I get that when I... um, If I cook, like, bacon or something like that. Like, she's, like, the one person on Earth where that smell isn't good to her. And I, I get, like... So I understand what it is. I try not to, you know make her have to deal with that uh it's probably a better way to say that i i generally try to be nice in that way but i certainly understand the potency of uh yeah like a pork driven passive aggressive relationship jab like it makes sense to me i uh i my wife really doesn't like meat all that much anymore and my daughter is vegetarian and one of my both of my sons aren't really all that into meat so there's not a lot of meat going on in the house apart from chicken so when I eat meat, it's not like, it's not revenge. It's just, I'm trying to get it in where I can. And they don't begrudge yeah. me that. Like, I'm just trying to get my meat intake so that I can get some protein and so I can have a burger when I have a fucking burger. And in general, I would say to our anonymous person that if you are engaging in passive aggressive forms of revenge against your spouse, that in general is not healthy for the relationship. And I've spent 20 years being married and trying to slightly buff buff out those little those little things and Get to a point where I'm not, uh, like if I if I'm annoyed at my wife, like I now just say I'm annoyed at you because of yeah. this, and then she that says, said, "Go to your room." Worst, then, uh, but if the worst part of your relationship, like if the way that you're really mad, like door slamming, having a fight, mad, is to just be like, oh, "Fuck it, I'm going to get a burger." Ugh. I'm like, that's actually pretty healthy. Yeah, like, you could do yeah, a lot it's not, worse. Yeah, it's not like, "Hey, I'm gonna go fuck a stripper." Like, okay, all right, right. I'm not gonna see you for two days, right. and then I, you're gonna get a call from a police officer someplace. <laughs> like, no, you're just going to, you're just going to get a sandwich. Like, good for you, man. This has been relationship and food advice with uh, Raw <laughs> and Ben Mathis. Brandon Nixon, Chantel Holder, are our producers. Nora Ritchie is our executive producer. Our theme song is by Kirk Hamilton. You can listen to ad-free episodes of The Distraction only on Stitcher Premium. Thanks to Roth and me, you can get a free month of Stitcher Premium right now. Just go to stitcherpremium.com and use the promo code DISTRACT. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever it is that you listen. And subscribe to Defector.com, too, while you're at it. And Ben Mathis Lilly's book is The Hot Seat, A Year of Outrage, Pride, and Occasional Games of College Football. That comes out uh, August 30th, wherever you get books, Uh, And I can't wait to read it. Ben, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, guys. I had a great time. All right. We'll see you guys next week. Bye. Bye.